I think why it's so important that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, is because the fear is overwhelming when you're alone. But when you're with somebody else, it can be managed. It can be faced. This is The Unsuitable Podcast, where I interview single Christians in order to broaden the conversation on singleness and expand our collective imagination of what is possible for the single life. I'm Mary B. Seyfried, a communicator, creator, and coach passionate about filling the gap between what the church offers and what single Christians need. If you like what you hear, make sure to follow, rate, and review so you don't miss new episodes. This week, we have another extended cut episode for you. It's one of those episodes my producer and I had a hard time making cuts to because there was so much gold. Well, now you get to hear the full interview. Dr. Alicia Nicole Harris is an award-winning poet and spoken word artist, an educator, and a linguist. In 2008, she featured on the HBO documentary Brave New Voices, where she wowed audiences with her piece, That Girl. In 2010, Alicia graduated UPenn, summa cum laude, with honors and was also inducted into the Phi Beta Kappa Honor Society. Alicia received her MFA in poetry from NYU in 2014 and her PhD in linguistics from Yale University in 2019. Alicia was also a founding member of the internationally known performance poetry collective, The Strivers Row, and has garnered over 5 million views on YouTube. She has toured nationally for the last 10 years and also performed at the United Nations and the U.S. embassies in Jordan and Ukraine, as well as in Australia, Canada, Germany, Slovakia, South Africa, the UAE, and the U.K. In today's episode, Alicia and I talk about how writing builds empathy, what it means to embody our faith, and the power of being honest with yourself. Before we dive in, I want to tell you about one-on-one coaching. If you're a single Christian who's tired of trying to cultivate a full, meaningful life alone, it might be time to try one-on-one coaching. I'm Mary B. Seyfried, a singles coach committed to helping you make the most of your right now life. Head to marybseyfried.com coaching, fill out the interest form, then schedule your free 60-minute intro call. I can't wait to hear from you. Alrighty, now let's dive into today's episode. Hi, Alicia. Hi, Mary B. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I would love for us to start. Um, It's not that often that I have uh, poets and poets who perform um, on this podcast. And so I would love for us to start with you um, performing one of your poems for us. Yeah, totally. It's going to be more of a reading than a performance because obviously we're on a podcast. um, But um, this poem is called When I Look at You Without Speaking, I'm Drawing a Map. I wrote it several years ago for a dear friend. When I look at you without speaking, I'm drawing a map. Love, not as origin, but as exodus. A parting, and then another. Dust of your country rolling off like sweat or my name from your tongue in the time you loved me. That autumn ripened mosquitoes in the walls of your apartment and made a border fence on my skin. I became the robber whom you fed windows. Fed me frame after frame, your silhouette sleeping, silhouette cutting mangoes, silhouette with other ghosts. You never told me, twice you were deported, 
before you made it to Nogales, alone and only nine years old. Saguaro's shadows pantomime, the owl's flex against the sky. Tiger shifts its stripes of sun and absence, making it day for you and then night. I erase and picture you as I always do in my mind, more windfall than friend, more brother to me than fig, home como ancla, no como cadenas, no Spanish word for north, rather you as a worm hooked in a little fishing village by the sea, away from the desert, calling the iguana's mother though they could give you no suck. I imagine you back in El Salvador older than you are now, gambling at a funeral, dice stirring up dust. The legs on a pair of ghost roses clipped and joined to your lapel. You won't die now, but you'll be disappointed you didn't on a mushroom trip in a car with friends, one Muscogean morning, wheels and wheels, and not a scream will break through your lobster grin. Don't lie and say you've been here and loved this soil. I am unfamiliar with any other images of you, you on a hill in an ocean of tall grasses, you inside Alaska with ice like chocolate around your mouth, or you in Montana under paperweight sky, land flat as a pulse. You plant kisses here, but you don't weed them. Your bare mouth leaves raspberries in my broken skin. You're playing hard to get, friend, and it's getting hard on me not to vacate my skirts and lift my thighs in this dry bed of burned-up rivers. My neck is breathless, unfurling lungs into a map back to where you've been. So if immigrating is loving two women, which one of us do you dream in? What's another woman to the other woman except an extra pair of hands to bring in the harvest, but I can't take you home. I'm not a coyote that way. I'm just the girl you guided through the reeds down to the loading dock. We lay on our backs, watch October get cut to pieces by helicopter. I say, look out over the vastness and forgive it all. In sleep last night, I pulled three boats ashore into your port. One for me, one for you, and one for her. See the rope burns, the labor of trying to bring what you love close enough to tie down and then ride out again onto the waves, assuring the beasts of burden that appear in all your poems. This time the mule doesn't drown. This time I don't keep a vigil until you return. This time you go and make it home to everyone. And when we dream, there aren't oil drums. Wow. Thank you so much. That was so beautiful. Yeah. You know. Would you Yeah, would you mind talking a little bit about it? Yeah. If there's like a story behind it. Um it's it's a it's a it was a poem that I wrote for a friend of mine um who uh uh, is an, an, a great poet, is a phenomenal poet, um, was born in El Salvador and um, to escape violence and to be with his family here at nine, um, walked 
um, on foot from El Salvador mm -hmm. to the United States um, mm -hmm. and uh, immigrated illegally or quote unquote to this country um, and experienced extreme amounts of just, yeah, I mean, the terror of a, a little kid walking that long, you know, sort of alone or with a stranger for part of the way. Um, and it was sort of a poem about me trying to understand him and sort of like what his issues with like commitment were, but also like also knowing that we shared like real tenderness um, between us, but then also recognizing that he always had this longing to, to sort of, you know, be somewhere else. And I felt that. Um, and so I just wrote, poem sort of partially romantic partially platonic but yeah just like a poem of intimacy about mm. experience and what it was like to to befriend him and walk with him during that time hmm. yeah I love so much about it I loved um how you talked about the dust in the land and that was such a strong image um throughout the whole thing and I love your thoughts about um, intimacy and that kind of in-between space of platonic and kind of not platonic. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's like so interesting. Like one of the things that he would always talk to me about was the reality of being able to travel everywhere within America, but never being able to step foot outside of America because there was a chance that he wouldn't be able to, to get back in. And so like... Mm these images of like him being in all of these places and traveling all the time, but it's sort of being a, sur a surrogate for not being able to actually go to the one place you want to go, which is home. I love that. Um, I would love to hear some more about your creative journey, about how you got into poetry when you started writing poetry. I know you've been performing for a really long time. Um, so I would love to hear about that journey and maybe um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I started writing poems when I was in fifth grade. And as soon as I knew what a poem was, I was like, oh, that's my life right there. I don't need to mm. do anything else. I found it that there it is. I just fell immediately in love with it. I'd always sort of had a, um, a sort of obsession, uh, with, with language and with words, even, as a child, um, I was like a constant babbler. Um, mm. <laughs> my parents would be like, you'd never stopped talking even before you could talk. Like you mm. always seemed to think that you had something to say, even though you were like completely incoherent. Um, <laughs> and I was like, well, I probably did. Um, and, <laughs> and yeah, writing has always been a, so since fifth grade, I, uh, have been using language as a medium to explore um, explore the world and explore the interior landscape of myself. I think like, language is a great gift because you don't need language to talk about the materiality of the physical world that surrounds you every day. In, th in theory, I could point to it or, you know, mm -hmm. we could sort of mime our way through it without having to rely on language. But if I want to tell you about, um, you know, my sadness, or if I want to 
talk about some um, abstract concept like freedom, or if I want to talk to you about God at some level, then <laughs> I have to rely on language in a particular kind of way. Um, and I guess that has always attracted me um, to it as a medium. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I um, I love that you, I love how you said um, as soon as you knew what a poem was, you knew that that's what you wanted to do. Um, and I love um, the idea of you just always having something to say. Um, you mentioned a little bit about using language to explore um, faith, to explore abstract mm-hmm. thoughts. Can you maybe describe a time where you found like maybe it was a relationship that you were kind of struggling with or a, a theological concept even you're struggling with where language really helped you express what was inexpressible about it? Oh, yeah. Like my whole life. <laughs> um, only one instance or I mean, I think like so one of the things is um, when I was young, my first like serious boyfriend um, was um, a boy and he did some time in um, in jail for a while. And I remember just having to communicate with him for like two years via letters, right? So it's like mm. I had to explore my feelings through language in a particular kind of way because phone calls were incredibly expensive. And we didn't see each other for two years. Um, And so like start, I guess that started, but even, yeah, but that like was a part of a larger pattern that has played out over the course of my life. So like um, when I, I'm a person that writes down my prayers, um, Mm -hmm. I have, I cannot even count how many prayer journals where it's Mm -hmm. like every day are just my prayers um, to God. And I think like I've used sort of writing letters or writing poems um, as a way of being able to express something to someone that I'm not actually able to have a conversation with. Um, So like Mm -hmm. my last very serious relationship, I completely fell in love with an atheist Um, (laughs) and Mm -hmm. um, that did not go so well for either of us. Um, And for a really long period of time, we didn't talk to each other, but I wrote him like over a hundred pages of letters throughout the period Mm. of time where we weren't like speaking, but we were still like sort of orbiting each other in this weird way. Um, And the letters really, when I look back on them, actually all of them, I was talking to someone, but I was really sort of exploring a kind of discourse with my own soul. And so looking back over prayers or poems or letters, you really begin to see your own sort of internal logic or what you were experiencing. And you're able to put it into context with time and also with um, like, as you grow in wisdom and experience. And so it's been really helpful for me to sort of have language as like a permanent chronicle of who I was at that time in my most intimate spaces, because we always sort of put up this, even when we're talking to um, anytime we're talking to another person, um, we are engaging in some form of accommodation, some Mm -hmm. form of trying to be understood and trying to understand another person. So we might use particular words that would 
not be as natural to us, but might be more accessible to someone else. Or we might have a certain affect when we talk, or we might use a particular set of phrases. But when you're talking to somebody who's not talking back to you, um, and who you have, you know, aren't going to read these, um, there's a different kind of freedom. And I really realized that throughout that process, I was talking to myself. And now I look back and I can see sometimes it's very cringeworthy, but I can see exactly who I was at those moments. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Speaking of that idea of accommodating um, and then having these letters that you were also writing, um, do you find that I know those were letters. Those letters were probably mostly for yourself, but did you ever feel like there was something worth sending to that person? Oh yeah. Like- <laughs> I never <laughs> did. Um because of like the nature of our relationship and like the ways that it has changed. Um but I definitely absolutely felt like there were tons of things and sometimes when the pressure to share something, because we all know what happens like when we break up with somebody and then it's like, okay, you know that you're not supposed to be in contact with them right now, mm-hmm. but, you, but your soul wants to continue to share things with them. And sometimes mm-hmm. like that feeling can be quite overwhelming. And so I'd be like listening to Tim Keller sermons and I'd be like, I want to send this to him so bad. And then I was like, self, go write it down in a little letter. So I would like write down my thoughts and like why I thought it would be super relevant and like how I thought it would speak to him and how it spoke to me. And then it would sort of alleviate the incessant need to always believe that the, like the epiphany or the word that you have is always for somebody else first. And I think Mm -hmm. the process of like, writing these letters that I never sent, um, I realized in the fact of like not sending them, that the epiphanies were actually for me. Um, Mm. And not that that can't um, generate change or excitement or be relevant for somebody else. Because I think like as followers of Jesus, we're always called to like serve and to, you know, edify and to exhort and to encourage others um, and to like give words of wisdom. But I think it's false to do that when you haven't actually let the word truly transform you first. Like, Mm. I want to be transformed by the word of God. I don't want to just tell you how you should be transformed by it. Um, Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Can you say a little bit more about that? Like, how is that something that you have always believed? Is that something that you've come to understand yeah is there a process there yeah definitely definitely long process of understanding (laughs) you didn't just wake up knowing theology that's no (laughs) just kidding yeah no I like especially like I've always watched like I I grew up Christian grew up reading scripture personally as a child Mm -hmm. even that was like a love of language I loved Mm -hmm. biblical language so I wanted to read the Bible. Um, my mom never had to convince me. I was like, Oh, I'm gonna go read the word. Goodbye. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. but I think as you, like, there, well, I am in a very opinionated person, which tends to mean that I also in have been at various points in my life and still am 
I can be a self-righteous person. Like I think mm-hmm. I know that I'm right. Um, and so when you get wisdom from God, whether it's like a word from the Holy Spirit or just, you know, reading the scriptures, you're like, oh, okay, I got it. I know it. Like I'm good. And then you want mm-hmm. other people, you want other people to also believe that because at some level that validates you at some level that makes you feel like, yes, you are wise. Um, and um, through particularly the process of dating my ex-boyfriend, who is an atheist, and the trash fire that that was, <laughs> <laughs> I realized that I did not handle that situation with wisdom or care, but I, I was very opinionated. I did have a lot of opinions. Um, mm-hmm. And I wielded them all the time. And I, I'm not even sure looking back on it that I believed everything that I was saying. And I think I wanted him to believe what I was saying so that I wouldn't have to deal with the fear of my own doubts or my own uncertainties. Um, and I think... Uh, it's been a process of realizing you can't be, which is also, you know, uh, relating to singleness as well. You cannot have a singular focus on another person, whether that's a potential spouse or, you know, your existing spouse, like your focus, like is on, is on witnessing God at work in your life and the work and at work in the lives of people around you. And you have literally no space to see what if God is doing in your own life, if you're always externally focused on your significant other or the significant other that you you want. I was talking to one of my friends this morning, Tim, um, about like this incessant search for a partner. And we were like, yeah, it's sort of like a spouse is like a rare bird. You're like, oh, my God, a spouse. Oh, my God, a spouse. And then you're like running after it. And then you're like, dang, wasn't a spouse. It was just a regular sparrow. But like you're so on edge, like looking, like bird watching, hunting, um, keeping your eyes peeled. And there are like potential spouses everywhere. And then you're like totally ignoring the fact that like, you know, God might be illuminating things like this, but the dove, the Holy Spirit, like might be aligning on you at this very critical moment, but you can't witness it because you're out there looking for a spouse. Mm, that's right. That is a word. Um, I would love to hear a little bit more about the story of um, this relationship that you've mentioned a couple of times, if you're willing to talk about yeah, it. I will. Um, he has a rather ubiquitous name, John. So I'm not outing anybody if I call there you him go. his name. Um, I met um, John on a dating app and, you know, it was like one of those first times sort of like, you know, uh, meet somebody and just go to dinner, have cocktails or whatever. And within yeah. like the first 10 minutes of the conversation, um, I don't know how, but it was like setting the tenor for our entire relationship. But he starts hmm. talking about um, 
he starts talking, I think he brings up Jesus because on my profile, I'm like totally in love with Jesus or like mm-hmm. something just blatantly like, yeah. you know, Jesus is my boyfriend, like type stuff, you know? Like, yeah. And so he's like, uh, so like, you know, I'm an atheist. He's like, do you think I'm going to hell? And I was like, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> On the first date? Yeah. <laughs> and he just busted out laughing. And he was like, I can respect that. You know, I can respect that. And I respect you for telling me what you think is the truth. And I was like, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. Like, I have no reason to lie to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sort of... uh that became a, like, I think from that point, we were able to have a real candor with one another that I just haven't experienced um, in other relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, where it was like, I'm going to tell you what I really, really think. And you're going to tell me what you really, really think. And then somehow we're going to be able to still respect each other and mm-hmm. even develop like love for one another. And he's, also a person who has a very developed uh, love of language. And Mm. that is something that we just tumbled into. Um, And it was like, you know, very few people can like tear up, you know, listening to um, like podcasts about language and like etymology, but like that he and I can. And, uh, yeah. And so that relationship developed and it like became like very serious very quickly. But then there's this part of me that was like, I don't know how to, I can't, well, you don't really love Jesus. You don't even like, mm-hmm. you don't even like Jesus. Yeah. Um, and I was like, and I go to a very, um, uh, not socially, cons- uh, maybe a little bit socially conservative. Anyway, I go to a pretty conservative church pretty Mm -hmm. strict reading of um the scriptures and like my and you know i'm getting counsel i'm getting counsel from my mom and from my friends or whatever and they're like "Uh uh-uh girl Uh -uh. Mm uh-uh no no to no 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 atheists and Mm -hmm. uh but john was always like but i like love you so Mm -hmm. and i and i love that you have faith like, I don't want you to not have faith. I will personally protect your faith in any way that I can, but like, I just can't share it. And hmm. that wasn't enough for me. And so, like, I did a really like punk thing and like sent a text message and was like, never talk to me again. I love you, but the spirit is not in this. Goodbye. Hmm. Um, and then bawled my eyes out for like nine months. Hmm. <laughs> um, so that was our, um, you know, relationship. And uh, I just, I, I think I was overwhelmed by fear um, mm. and fear that somehow my own faith was at stake um, mm. in a way that I'm not exactly sure if it was. Mm. Yeah, so it taught me a lot. It taught me a ton. And I saw 
this is also like my, this is not my first trip to the pony show. Um, <laughs> I also had a very serious relationship with a Muslim guy back in college. We like dated for three years. We did not get married mm-hmm. because of faith. It was also very traumatic. Um, mm-hmm. And so this is also very similar to that in a lot of ways. Um, but it just taught me a lot about who I thought I was and who I thought God was and um, needing to feel like, needing to feel in control and believing mm-hmm. that God was like that. I like, Well, I'll say it this way. I think in, especially in reformed traditions, um, of which I have been heavily influenced, we emphasize hardcore the sovereignty of God. Yeah. But like we don't emphasize like the vulnerability of Jesus. Mm. And it's like, I cannot be, I cannot even pretend to be like like a sovereign God. Cause I'm mm. definitely not sovereign. So like when I like, when I um, aspire to these notions of like control and certainty and being able to have it all figured out, it's like, why am I even doing that? Cause I can't, I can't even be like God in that way, but like I can be like Jesus. And like, that is the mandate. And like Jesus was hella vulnerable. Like mm. Jesus was in love with people that spat in his face. Like, yeah. Jesus had to walk a path, in fact, not even uncertain, but knowing that people were absolutely going to betray him and hurt him and wrong him. And like, he still did it. And if that's the path of love and salvation, it is a foolish path. Like, Hmm. and it's the path I think Jesus calls us to. Hmm. Not to like dogmatic certainties but like a real embodied faith that requires faith and courage and risk and like all for the sake of like love. And, and that is compelling to me. And I don't think I really understood that I could talk about it. I could use all the words, yeah, but I couldn't, I didn't know how to live that or embody that. Um, because it's like terrifying. It's like, Mm. it is terrifying. Yeah. Yeah, it totally is. And this was something my pastor actually gave a sermon last week and talked about the vulnerability of Jesus. So this is very timely. Great. (laughs) Um, but gosh, I've been so drawn to that idea of embodying, um, embodiment and not just having all of these ideas and this like being okay with the with the space between like a question and an answer mm-hmm. and like that that kind of tension that I and nuance that I think um is really attractive to me as a as a creative person mm-hmm. um but also as a person of faith um and also as you were saying out of a sense of like well I'm not god and I'm not sovereign and I'm not you know all of those things that god is um but I love what you said about the mandate is to be like Jesus and Jesus was vulnerable in how he moved around this earth, even in his choice, you know, to like be born, mm-hmm. like to, to be a helpless 
baby and to grow up and to, you know, have skinned knees and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I was thinking about that today as well. I was like, how do we square like the sovereignty of God with like kid Jesus running around, Mm -hmm. like, you know, falling down and getting skinned knees and, you know, learning how to talk and like, yeah. Yeah, the idea of Jesus learning things, Mm -hmm. first of all, like was not born just like kind of knowing, but that he learned, like he learned to speak and he learned the scripture, um, learned to be a person in this world is just so astonishing. Yes, yes. And I think when we think about like our journeys, we think that like, oh, we have to have it figured out. We have to know from the beginning. And it's like, mm, no, not really. You don't have to know. Like you do have to, you do have to take another step. Like yep. that's what you do have to do. But like, you don't have to know if your foot is actually going to, you know, support you or plant you. Um, yeah. You have to like, you have to step out on faith. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. the, the difference Go ahead. between like a just, like a a faith of uh, intellectual assent, which is like, yeah, I believe that, or like, yeah, I can I can get down with that, versus like you actually living it out and it being something that affects the way that you actually live in a beautiful and broken world. Because um, mm. if your faith isn't really doing that, and you know, I don't really. I'm don't <laughs> what is it doing exactly yeah yeah I man um that's something that I've been kind of learning as well as uh thinking about how uh, you know we're not just brains on a stick and so it's all well and good to have ideas about how things maybe sh- we think should be in an idealistic th- sense but you know how does that actually translate into the dirt, into the grit of our everyday lives? Yeah. Um. And how, ha- and all of those little decisions, like you were saying, the little steps along the way. You know, how are those forming me mm-hmm. in a particular direction? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um. And I think that's like makes to me that that helps me make sense of like, you know, Paul's sort of mandate to to like pray without ceasing. And it's like, how do you make everything, the way that you interact with somebody, the way that you take care of your body, the way that you, you know, um, eat, the way that you, you know, uh, yeah, just make space for strangers. How do you make every part of that prayer, um, every part of that a communication point where you are actually saying, God, I, I, I'm talking to you as I do this. Like I'm, I'm in conversation with you as I, you know, eat better, or I'm in conversation with you as I, um, say no to anxiety and like, yes to rest. Um, Mm. those are just beautiful moments where you're like, oh yeah, you're always here. You're always around. Thanks. Love it. Yeah. And the fact that, I mean, he's not going to like force his way in that we get to invite um, and that we're we're led by the spirit, of course, but but that we get to invite God into those everyday moments that He's actually very interested in those everyday moments because mm-hmm. it's those are what make up a life. Yes. Um, yes. Um, one of my friends 
Um, she, I, she wouldn't identify as a Christian, but she would identify as a follower of Jesus. Um, and she, as she was saying one day, she was like, if I am so intent on speaking, she said, God is so quiet that he will surely allow me to speak over him. Mm. And I was like, Oh God. (laughs) (laughs) And I think about like those small moments as being invitations to say like, what would you say, God? What are you saying um, through this? I'm listening. Mm. Gosh, that's good. That um, God would be gracious enough to allow us to speak over him. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's so good. Um, I would love to, um, we've been talking about language, but also about embodying kind of ideals. And I wanted to kind of shift focus a little bit to something that you have on your website. Um, it's, I think part of your mission statement, um, mission page. Mm -hmm. Um, but it says that it is not, it is not enough to express via words. We must also equip via action, education and resources. Mm -hmm. Um, and you actually have several workshops that you, um, lead and teach. Mm -hmm. Um, I would love to hear more about how you got into that. Um, and maybe what your favorite workshop is. Oh yeah. Um, well, basically, I got into teaching because in the tradition of spoken word that I come from, um, it, you're a part of a legacy. So you have mentors and then you are mm-hmm. taught and then it is an expectation that you would pass down and sort of teach the younger poets that are coming up after you, that you would help coach or help edit or you know um, teach them what you've learned about performance along the way. That is the tradition that I came from. Um, So everyone is a student and everyone is a teacher. And I think the thing that sort of started shocking me was, well, everywhere there are resources that teach people how to be good, how to be an expert at Mm. something. Um, how to be an expert writer, how to be an expert performer, how to be an expert businessman, how to be an expert scientist. But like there is so, especially in secular communities, and I have to say I have spent the majority of my time in secular communities. Mm -hmm. There's nothing out there teaching people how to be moral, how to be human, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, oh, I can teach you how to be a businessman, but I can't teach you how to be a human being. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's like, you're just on your own with that one. Um, And I was like, wow, there's so many resources into like pursuing capitalist success or pursuing Mm. creative, you know, mastery um, and fame, right? Um, But like so little time actually teaching or helping people, helping especially young people to like answer the questions of their lives that are forming them as Mm. people. And I was like, well, I think poetry can do that. Um, Poetry certainly taught me a lot of that. Um, And so I I, I envisioned one day having a school and calling it like, or like a after school program or something or a nonprofit, whatever, and calling Mm -hmm. it like poetics or something like that. Something like cheeky, but yeah. 
and teaching ethics through the process of writing, through the process of performance. I learned Mm -hmm. how to be a vulnerable person by performing on stage. Yes, I learned how to, and then I still needed training beyond that because then I was only vulnerable on stage, but never vulnerable anywhere else. Then it was like, no, bro, you got to bring that into your actual life. Um, And like empathetic listening is how do you know what the poem is saying? Or if you're writing a short story, how do you know who your characters are? You have to spend time with them, not speaking for them, but listening to them. Um, close readings, like all of these things, the editing process of recognizing that nothing is actually finished. Like there isn't there, the poem isn't perfect. Like it's still an ongoing discussion. Um, it's still an ongoing work. And like, that's like our lives. And so Mm. I really wanted to, to do something that could help really. And, and the other thing is that poetry, especially like spoken word, it's not and also like hip hop, it's not sugarcoating the real world. Like people yeah. are always trying to protect the innocence of children. Like children don't really know what's going on around them. They know mm-hmm. you just haven't given them the skills or the tools to be able to process what's going on around them. Um, That's right. And so I was like, nah, like we should probably talk about the real things. Cause these kids I know from experience being one of them and then coaching them, they have a lot to say and they have a lot of insight, but they still need help sort of making sense of it um, and making a life out of it and like living the, the truth of the poems that they're, that they're, that they are performing on stage. So I started doing um, these workshops and um, you know, one of my favorite ones which I can't even, I don't even remember which one I've done this in. I've probably done it in all of them. Um, mm. Is we do like an, like in like an empathy workshop, we do exercises where, again, we use the idea of writing a letter um, and we write a letter to, you know, the, the person that bullied us as a child, like when we were mm. young. And then we write a letter to the person who, we withheld empathy from in high school because you know how judgy teenagers are. Mm-hmm. Even if you were judged, you were still judgy. You know, um, the person who you just like thought that you just, ugh, you just couldn't stand. Um, mm-hmm. And then like we go through the process of sort of like writing a letter of questions to like the group of people that you are most likely, that you are most, um, likely to withhold empathy from like, and so people have written about a ton of things. People have like written letters to white supremacists. People have written letters to queer folks. People have written letters to black folks. People have written letters to um, murderers or whatever. Um, And to really, and I try to, I try to push the workshop participants to not pick people who you think it's morally righteous to hate, Mm. but like pick the people who you really know that you are actually like, that you are made uncomfortable by. Mm. Um, And to really sit down and what would you say? Like what, what questions would you ask? Like um, not in an attempt to offend somebody, but in an attempt to truly understand like, 
And people have unearthed like all sorts of biases that they didn't know that they had. And I've unearthed all sorts of biases that I didn't know that I had. And it's really the process of saying like, the, the, the biggest barrier to actually living a compassionate life like really believing that you're already compassionate like Mm. like if you really think that you are the queen of compassion all right but you know the thoughts that are going on in your head i know the Mm -hmm. thoughts that are going on in my head and i know fully darn well that i am not the queen of compassion i'm not um and i have the scars in relationships to prove that. Hmm. Yeah. Um, gosh, that's so good. I, um, I mean, I'm like, man, I wish I had that as a kid. Oof. Um, I think that I would imagine that, um, there would be a lot of fear involved in those kinds of exercises. Mm-hmm. Um, even mm-hmm. to like be able to be honest with yourself mm-hmm. in that way, I think takes a lot of courage. Um, can you kind of speak to how you, um, kind of challenge your students or even how you challenge yourself to, um, push kind of past that or to embrace yeah. it and move through it? Yeah. Um, in some of the workshops, we like do a little bit of a study on anger and on, um, the root causes of anger and mm-hmm. um, fear is a potential root cause of anger, but so is humiliation. Um, mm-hmm. So is um, rejection. So, it, you know, uh, so is betrayal. Um, these are also really um, powerful sort of motivators um, and things that people are afraid of and sort of how we deal with, that in the workshop is just like by acknowledging it, just being like, it is scary. And if you never, if you don't feel comfortable of doing the exercises, none of them are mandatory. Um, And you don't have to share anything that you write down. And if you're just like, nope, this is too much for me. Like also just giving people the freedom and the license to be like, this is beyond my comfort zone. And I'm I'm not doing that and not making people feel bad for not participating. Um, Mm -hmm. But often because it's a group setting, and everybody's sort of participating, most people actually do decide to. Because they're like, oh, this person's doing it. That person's doing it. Okay, like maybe I can, maybe I can go a little bit beyond my comfort zone. Um, mm. And I think that's also like the beauty of like Jesus having 12 disciples. It was like they weren't yeah. there alone. Like when Jesus sent them out to like cast out demons and heal yep. the sick, he did not send them by themselves. And I think like, why it's so important that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, is because the fear is overwhelming when you're alone. But when you're with somebody else, it can be managed. Um, yeah. It can be faced. Um, and so, yeah, I just said, like, hey, like I do this. I, sometimes I out myself and say, here are the people that I find it really hard to identify with. Um, <laughs> and probably I'm going to judge um, and people feel like, oh, okay, well, if you're like the workshop leader and you're out of mm-hmm. yourself, then like, all right, 
it's okay. Yeah. I'm interested to hear kind of the timing of the development of that workshop. Was that before or after the um, breakup with this person? Oh, the, it was John. Before. It was before. See, that's what I'm saying. It's ongoing because I had I was practicing these workshops for mad long before I dated yeah. John. Um, and I think it's also different when it's like there and it's your fear. And it's not like mm. your fear is uh, – <laughs> a living, breathing person who is not escapable in the way mm-hmm. that like, I can, you know, there's this a sort of like a dodge that's like, I can do anything as, as long as I know that it's going to end. Like, mm-hmm. so it's like, yeah. Oh yeah, I can do that for 10 minutes. I could do that for whatever. Like, you know, my ex did another ex did basic training and he was like, well, basic training was okay because I knew that it was going to end at some Mm -hmm. point. Like, so whatever I went through, I knew it wasn't going to last forever, but being in a relationship and somebody standing in front of you and saying, are you going to love me? Mm -hmm. Well, hopefully there's no end to that. Yeah. You know? There's no putting that down or away. And I'm like, and I think like the vulnerability of being with somebody for a lifetime, especially when you have very different views. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just terrifying. Like it mm-hmm. was like, what if we can't decide on anything? What if like I what if you take me away from Jesus? Like literally, I mean, honestly, that's probably my biggest fear. Like I was like, I love Jesus and I will not leave him for you. Okay. Yeah. Um, and figuring out like, how do I ensure that that's true? And that's like, okay, well, like you, you broke up with the person, but you certainly didn't act like Jesus while you were doing that. Mm. So what actually took you away from Jesus? Hmm. Yeah, I'd be interested to hear um, if there was kind of that sense of community helping you push past your comfort zone um, in the breakup and kind of the aftermath of that relationship as you were sorting through all of these fears and feelings and processing what happened. Um, Was there a community of friends around you that was helping you with that? Um, I think they all meant well. Yeah. Um, But like, I don't think people really helped me push past my comfort zone. Hmm. I think what they helped me do was sort of confirm that, but they were people that were like, yes, it is greatly unwise for you to date this person. Um, and you should, you should know better as like a very mature Christian, like Mm. you should know better. And so like, this is, of course it's going to be a trash fire. (laughs) Like, Mm. um, and then, but then I also think, and so I was like, okay, you're right. Like I'm going to listen to wise counsel. 
Um, mm-hmm. And to be honest, like I, I didn't have peace dating him, right? Like it would be one thing mm-hmm. if I like had peace about dating him, but I didn't have peace about it. Um, mm-hmm. And so eventually I was just like, you know, like I can't do this, which, you know, I don't know if was the, was it the wrong decision because I don't know that I would have been able to stay in that relationship from a place of peace. I think I would have still been in turmoil. Um, Cause I didn't, I didn't know what I know about. I didn't, I didn't, I, I didn't know what I now know about who Jesus is in my life and who mm. he has called me to be. Um, I think you continuously know you step into that. And so I was just like, I had just been baptized. You know, I was like so fervently in love with Jesus. I was like yep. celibate. I was like, I'm not even hooking up with nobody because I love God, you know? Yep. And here this, you know, man comes up and is like, I want to I want to love you and I want to marry you except I, I don't know if I want to, I don't want Jesus. And then I was mm. like, mm-mm, mm-mm, this is a trick from Satan. It's a trick. Yeah. <laughs> um, yep. And, but then also like you have to look at, again, like the, the beauty of an, an incarnate, an incarnational God is that you also have to look at not just the static, um, I don't mean myth in a bad way, like it's not true, but you cannot just look at the static myth of the gospel. It has to be a living reality in your life, which means the gospel has to come down and actually live and make sense in terms of who you are. Like, I don't know if it would make sense for the gospel for me to be like, you know what, I'm going to like, in the middle of the pandemic, start walking, um, you know, on foot to different little towns across America and Mm -hmm. saying, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. You know, Mm -hmm. incarnationally, that doesn't make sense with my life, with my life story. But what does make sense with your life story? And the thing Mm -hmm. that I, when I look over it, I'm like, I've always been living just at the edge of a variety of communities. I've Mm -hmm. always been too liberal and too secular for the church and too inquisitive, honestly. Um, but then I've also been too conservative and too religious for secular spaces. I have a biracial history in both of my family lines, both my mother's line and my father's line. And it's mm-hmm. like, I've, I'm a black woman who has grown up in predominantly white spaces her, the majority of her life. I like lived in the Middle East as a Christian. Like I am a that's my life. Like Mm. that's who I am. And so when you're thinking about how does Jesus want to make a story out of that? About to preach to myself. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Come on now. But like, how does Jesus want to make a story out of my life? And how does he want to live inside my life? It's not going to look like making me into a first century, like Palestinian Jewish man. Yep. 
And that doesn't mean that the, the, that the Bible isn't true. It doesn't mean that its wisdom should be ignored, but it like does mean it's like you, it has to be the living text in your life. Um, yeah. And like when I look back on it, it's like, you know, we do like the left brain, right brain tests. I always score like da- straight down the middle. Like I have a PhD in linguistics, but I like, but I toured the world as a poet. Like I, that mm-hmm. is me. That's me. The duality of these things. And it's like, yeah. Okay. Like, how are you going to square the fact that like the majority of your closest friends, the people that you have loved and who have loved you the most, they did so when they weren't believers. Now mm-hmm. a lot of them are, <laughs> but, <laughs> but like you grew up and loved them and learned to trust them and learn to do life with them before they said yes to Christ and it wasn't a contingent on your love. Um, And when I look at Jesus, he loved people before they called him the Messiah. Yep. And I'm just like, what are you so scared of girl? You ain't losing Jesus. (laughs) That's right. Mm. Um. I'm curious to hear a little bit of, you know, if you have any practices or I don't know, um, maybe practices is the best word of how you kind of um, live with that sense of being in between. Um, If you've been able to find community and belonging um, in some circles or if it's just kind of something you've grown to embrace. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, can I ask that question? I mean, I know that I'm but like, can I ask that question back to you as well? Just because mm. I think I'm not sure that any of us ever fit neatly in any space. I mean, maybe we do, but I feel like we're a bundle of complexities. I yeah. live that in an extreme way. Like, yeah. Um, but I would, and I, and I don't, I feel comfortable, if this makes sense, I feel content everywhere. I mm-hmm. do not feel known. Mm. And in very many places. Mm. Like, I feel like I can be and be like, yep, this is good. Like, th- I can rock with this. Um, but I don't always feel like all of my parts are seen at any one time. Hmm. Um, But I also feel very comfortable in uh, the majority of places where other people don't feel comfortable. Hmm. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Maybe like I have a high threshold for, difference in general and I think that's why like my interactions with John are like are uncharacteristic of like who I am as an individual you know Mm. um and so it's like "Mm, that's not who Jesus called you to be child um so yeah but do you feel like do you and like as a believer as like a believer and a creative person like have you found community spaces? Yeah, I mean 
it's definitely been a challenge that I haven't really been able to name fully until I went like all in Mm -hmm. um, as a as a creative person. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of it was, I think, um, stepping away from a lot of what was familiar to me. So that looked like moving to New York. Mm -hmm. Um, And I grew up in North Carolina. I was in North Carolina my whole life. I mean, I traveled and stuff, but um, was there for, sorry? Where, where North Carolina? Um, I'm from a really small town called Beaufort. It is on the coast at the bottom of the Outer Banks. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, But I went to college at Elon, which is kind of in the triad, and then uh, grad school at UNC Greensboro. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that for me, there was a sense of needing to break with what was very, very familiar, like a very familiar culture and way of being, Mm -hmm. um, that's really allowed me to, I think, own some of that sense of restlessness that I just kind of feel most of the time. Mm -hmm. Um, and to be able to see it as a gift in some ways. Um, I do feel like I have friends, um, and people in my life who I, I really feel, known by. Um, but I will also say that it took a lot to get there. Um, but, um, you know, there's being a creative person and just kind of in my head a lot, there is also a sense of like, I don't know, there's always parts of us that people aren't going to know all at once. Um, and so, it is challenging to have that kind of question in the back of my head of, well, if they knew this thing, would they still want to be around me? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I definitely feel that that sense of like um, being a creative and being Christian and even like being single in some ways, um, not feeling totally at home. Mm. Um in a lot of places, but being able to operate pretty well in a lot of spaces. Um, so I don't know. I think for me, it's it's been a process of giving myself permission to um, kind of, I don't know, trust the people in my life and to let myself be a little bit more vulnerable um, with people who have demonstrated that um, they're trustworthy. Yep. Um, and also, like, there's just a lot of creative people kind of in New York, but also in um, the church that I go to as well. Um, and so they're they're pretty comfortable with kind of living with complexity and pushing towards um, nuance and asking questions um, and and that has been a really, really cool thing to be a part of. Um, but there is still that kind of fear-based sense of, well, I don't, I don't know. There's, there's parts of me that they don't know. And if they did know, then would they want to be around me? Mm. I think we all feel that at some level, that like, you know, that tension between being able to be known versus being able to be loved. Um, yeah. And, like 
feeling like, oh, yeah, well, if you you only love me because you don't actually know me. But if you knew me, you wouldn't love me. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I definitely feel that, struggle with that, believe that a lot of times. And mm-hmm. it even, like, manifests in, like, the rewriting of narratives um, to, like, confirm that bias as well. Um, yeah. So like even when you 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 asked like oh like where have you found community and I was like oh well, not a lot of places like not a lot of places but some places like you were talking about your church and I was like oh yes Elm City Vineyard how could I forget I was a part of a church in Connecticut for six years that was like basically yeah. nothing but artists academic and like charismatic AF like mm. Christians who love Jesus um, and. Like you just saw the Holy Spirit at work and it was like a multi-ethnic uh, church, which is so yeah. rare. Um, yeah. And like just deep community with one another, deep, deep community living. And like, I just saw the Holy Spirit at work. So I did mm-hmm. feel seen and known in that community. Um, and like, and I like long for it and I miss it a lot. And even though the church that mm-hmm. I go to in Atlanta, it's actually full of professional Christian creatives, like yeah, full, literally full. Um, there's this, I would say distrust of the spirit hmm. and a distrust that like, that it's like a journey of becoming, mm. you know, like, yeah. um, and that like, if we have such a strict view of like how God shows up and how he doesn't show up and what God says and what he doesn't say. And like, yeah. then like we are, like we're not going to be wowed by God because we feel like we're just understood him. Like we're Mm -hmm. not going to like, he's not going to be who he is. Like he's not going to do the miraculous. And I've seen God do the miraculous. So I can't lie. Um, So it is tension. It is tension. Yeah, for sure. And it kind of reminds me, you know, going back to the very beginning of our conversation where you're talking about like letter writing versus having a conversation where there's that sense of engaging in some form of accommodation when you're talking to another person. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, how do we love people well and accommodate to people in a way that that communicates that love, but also how do we show up authentically? Um, mm-hmm. And I think, it's like you said, it's it's an ongoing thing, right? There's not going to be a place of arrival in this life where we're like, yes, and now I have belonging figured out. <laughs> and here I am <laughs> in all of my relationships perfectly. And, you know, I don't think that's really the point of relationships to begin with. But I think for me, I struggle with remembering that and, um, you know, um, allowing myself the space to learn and to learn as I go and to mm-hmm. to really embrace that that is the reality of life. Um, yeah. That that's actually like the reality and anything else is a fiction. Like yep. anything that like spins me, like 
I was having a conversation with my friends, friends, in-laws. Um, so her husband's parents and, um, her father-in-law like asked me like, Oh, Alicia, like, where are you comfortable in terms of relationships? Like certainty, uh, assurance, Hmm. confidence. And I was like, certainty. I am comfortable with certainty. And he's like, Oh, well, you're never going to have that in a relationship. (laughs) And I was like, Oh my God. And then I just like, like crumble and also cried but he was like like, I've been married for 15 years like or 20 years he's like I don't have certainty I have assurance and I have confidence but I don't have certainty and if you're waiting for certainty before you commit to a person you're never gonna commit because it's never going to come and that's good yeah that is what I need I need the truth Mm. Gosh, Alicia, this has been so good. Um, I've so enjoyed talking to you. I have a couple of last questions for you. The first is how we can support you. I would love to hear like where you are on the internet. um, Mm -hmm. And if you have any exciting projects coming up, how we can support you. Yes. So exciting. Well, on the internet, I'm at aliciaharris.com. It's my website. And I'm thinking about like launching a newsletter, which um, is sort of going to talk about language and spirituality, most likely. Um, and so you can sign up on my website for the newsletter. And it should be, I don't know when I'm going to launch it, but probably before the end of 2020. Um sort of thinking about topics now. Um, You can also find me on like uh, Instagram, which I do. I give these like little silly, not, they're not silly. I should not be self-deprecating, especially when I don't mean it. I give, I think pretty great, a very quick little sermonettes on Instagram from time to time. So if you like just daily encouragement, um, I think you should check me out on Instagram, which is poppy, like the flower, P-O-P-P-Y, in the wheat, like in the wheat, like wheat bread. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm usually on there. Right now I'm taking a sort of Instagram hiatus because social media is addictive. Um, Yep. But yes, so you can meet or talk with me there. And also on Twitter, I also tweet, and um, it's also by the same handle, Poppy in the Wheat. Um, I am working on a couple projects at once. Oh, and I also like am an editor for a magazine, so you should totally check out the magazine that I work for, which is called ScalawagMagazine.org. We are a Southern progressive and radical nonprofit media organization that sort of illuminates dissent within the American South and stands in solidarity with um, marginalized folks in the South, Mm. black, brown, and queer folks and rural folks um, in the South. Um, So definitely check that out if you're interested in that content. It's called scalawagmagazine.org. And I handle all of the arts and soul content. So stuff about music, theater, literature, etc. 
um, and projects that I'm currently working on. So I am working on a thousand things. I'm working on a <laughs> full length manuscript of poetry, um, <laughs> which it's not ready. Um, I, and then I have also been toying with the idea of like taking these letters and maybe trying to turn them into something that is for an external audience. That mm. Um, and that is a very personal project and I go back and forth all the time about whether I should do this or not, but I think God is calling me to do it. Honestly. Mm. It's just how, not sure. Um, so those are the things that I'm working on, and I'm moving to Texas. So there's nice. that. And you're, um, I know you have a bunch of stuff on YouTube as well, so they can just search your yeah, name and find you there. Alicia Nicole Harris. And if you want to actually like, read about African-American English and you're like a linguist, you can also read my dissertation, which should be available if you type in my name and dissertation, Alicia Nicole Harris dissertation. It should come. Nice. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for that. Um, and I'll put all that information in the episode description for people. Yeah. Um, will you last but not least, um, tell me one thing that's hard right now. And one thing that's great. Yes. Hmm. One thing that's hard right now is dealing with the anxiety that I have around writing. Hmm. Um, but one thing that's great is that I know that Jesus called me to be a writer. So the anxiety hmm. also has an end date. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Alicia, thank you so much for being here. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Mary B. It's no secret that many singles feel like outsiders in the church. That's why we've created a Patreon community. For a small monthly fee, you can get access to bonus content, plus a community where your voice and presence are valued. Tiers start at just $5 a month. Sign up at patreon.com unsuitable. You can check out more of Alicia's work on her website, aliciaharris.com, on social media at Poppy in the Wheat, on YouTube, and at scalawagmagazine.org. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the show, please take a minute to rate and review. To stay up to date on all things unsuitable, follow me on Instagram or TikTok at maryb.saferit or subscribe to my weekly newsletter at marybsaferit.com. Unsuitable is produced by Studio Aplum. Sound engineering is by me, Mary B. Saferit, and the theme music is by Chad Rollinson. That's all for now. Catch you on the flippity flop. <laughs>